Deadwood Soundwell. Prosecutors in Dallas have said for years, any prosecutor can convict a guilty man. It takes a great prosecutor to convict an innocent one. You're entering a cosmic void. Welcome to A Cosmic Void. I'm Biggs. And I'm Lauren. So Lauren O'Neill's coming on from the Dippers podcast. I just want to remind the audience again, Jeremiah's taking a little hiatus. He will be back. But in the meantime, I'm trying to get a guest every week. And Lauren was gracious enough to step in with very little time and come in and do this movie. So I've not ever seen this movie. I remember hearing the title quite a few times. And if I'm being completely honest, I thought it might be related to the Thin Bread Line somehow, which I have also sure. not seen. So yeah. I... <laughs> Now I know the context. It's nice to put a movie to the title. I I, I want to say it's it's referenced in many popular culture ways that once you see it, you're like, oh, maybe that's what was about. And then I, I saw recently, what's Fred Armisen's documentary now? Yeah, yeah. They have their version of it. And yes, South Park just talks about Philip Glass, but same, same, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. Fargo, I feel like the cop killing scene really draws a lot from this sort of portrayal. It was very influential. So what's your history with this movie? You said this was one of your favorite movies. Which I guess when I'm saying favorite, I don't always want to cuddle up with the thin blue line, you right. know, and a bowl of popcorn <laughs> and just put on my fuzzy socks. It's not exactly like that. It's a movie that every time I see, I think about it and people a little bit differently. And then the more I I have had any sort of relationship with you know people throughout the years. I saw it initially either it had to be early college. I saw it in college and I'm feeling like it was pretty early on. And it was one of those things that it's not necessarily like the room where people are like, you have to see this to believe it. I can't even tell you. But it's like, I don't want to tell you anything about it. Just see it. And then let's talk about it. Because it's on the face of it, a documentary about a police officer being murdered and the subsequent trial and conviction of someone. But essentially, I feel like it's more about how people really do act and behave. And that can change the course of someone's lives irreconcilably or many people's lives. Yeah. And as an actor and performer, I've been trained constantly from a very young age to observe, to distill. I'm observing people and I'm distilling from that some takeaway, how they walk, something about their affect, something about what they're representing. And in this movie, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about the plot, the mechanics of it. But in this movie, Errol Morris very clearly shows you the people involved, all the players. And it's a very unflinching, unfiltered 
unbiased. Well, I don't want to say, well, I guess, I guess the interviews are unbiased in the way he records them. It's really unique. It, it feels like it's an, as unbiased as possible. Our mutual acquaintance, Aaron Donaldson, would tell us like no documentary is unbiased necessarily yes. because it's going through an eye. But yeah, it feels like it's, it's trying to be fair, which is more than a lot of documentaries can say. I say, and I also feel like Errol Morris went into it trying to prove his version of the case, which is the opposite of what the courts eventually found. And he believed that the man, Randall Adams, that was on death row for this murder was innocent. And that the other person that had testified against him, David Harris, was guilty. And so he went into it kind of knowing what he wanted to show, but also going out of his way to not say it, if that makes any sense, to let you draw your own conclusion. And that conclusion is his conclusion. And every review I read was just like, no thinking person could believe that he did it. And obviously, we'll get into that as we go through the beat by beat on this. But one thing that really struck me when I was watching this was I've watched a lot of documentaries from the 80s and earlier. And apparently this is not the first time somebody shot recreations in a documentary, but it popularized it. Exactly. And another thing I found very interesting is how they handled true crime then versus now. Because I'm not a big true crime person now, but I used to watch some stuff. And this movie reminded me of why I used to watch true crime stuff. Yes. And it's because it used to be in a movie or it would be like an hour long TV show, you know? Unsolved mysteries. Exactly. America's yeah. most wanted, a current affair. Uh, <laughs> maybe not that one. That was more for trash. Maybe stuff, not a right? current affair. But like Dateline was a good one when they weren't getting child molesters oh or God. anything. <laughs> they were like, oh my God, that's a whole nother fucking story. Oh, boy. Talk about an episode. But what I really liked about this, and I wanted to note it up top, is one thing that they don't do in this movie is stray off of the subject. And it's exactly what you said it is. It's it's making the case for this man's innocence. And so one of the things that they don't do that would be on, say, a Netflix documentary, which would probably be like five or six parts, right. they don't go into the victim and really talk about him outside of where it's at in the case. You don't get to know a bunch of people that aren't pertinent to it. And really the only people you get to know are the two people that were involved in this murder. And both of them, everything you get to know about them is directly associated with the case. So it's laser focused on what it's talking about. Even if it's old, it's refreshing to get something that really knows what it is and knows the form and the direct way to get it, as opposed to kind of meandering. And there's room for all of that. But uh, sure. for me, it was it made it very digestible, I guess. And you brought up its age. The movie came out in 88 and the case itself the murder occurred thanksgiving weekend in 1976 and then randall adams was later arrested in well as the cops mentioned you know we we had to get somebody arrested before christmas essentially so right right, right before christmas they pull him in and then he sat on death row for many years be three days before his one of his scheduled executions he received a stay the supreme court heard his appeal of the united states 
and overturned it, but he still was just remanded to life in prison. And so this movie came out in 1988. Errol Morris, he's one of my favorite documentarians. It turns out he's one of my favorites too, and I didn't realize it till I was looking oh, him up. Fog of War, have you seen, or That's Standard exactly, Operating Procedure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fog yep. of War was exactly what I was going to go to. There was yeah. a couple of them that I knew I'd seen, but Fog of War might be it's my favorite documentary. It's staggering. really good. It's so good. And the the way specifically he interviews people has to do that. And I'll talk about that in a sec because I'm just, I'm a big old fanboy over here. But in the early 80s, Errol Morris had made two films. He'd made Gates of Heaven, which is his first film. And it is charming and bizarre as fuck. It's about two kind of dueling pet cemeteries. It's a great story. <laughs> I think and I read he, something of this. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's honestly the weirdest thing. The next one, uh, Vernon, Florida, is right under an hour. And it's just about people who live in this town of Vernon, Florida. Just this Again, unjudgmental, unjaundiced eye, just looking at people for who they are. And in doing that, it allows them to become comfortable enough to just kind of talk to him. So he's also admittedly, Errol Morris is a bit of an obsessive. He's got to get to the root of every story. He made these two films. Nobody would buy anything else he was selling and he was struggling for money. He's, you know what am I going to do? So he's working as a private investigator and somebody gives him money to go investigate a psychologist in Texas, specifically Dallas, Texas, who was known as Dr. Death. Yep. And he testified in death penalty cases, apparently in Texas, or at least in Dallas County, you need a psychologist to testify that the convicted will definitely kill again. They will be unable to be rehabilitated in any way. So death is the only option. And it's law that you have to have this happen. So whenever they have a death penalty case, they bring in this guy and go figure. He always says, oh, this guy's going to kill again for sure. So Errol Morris goes down to Texas and is interviewing this guy and he's like, well, every convict on death row will tell you they're innocent. Why don't you go ahead and interview some of them yourselves? So Errol Morris is like, okay, that sounds great. So he starts interviewing this long list of convicts, and one of them was Randall Adams. And he was so intrigued by the case and the story that he kind of, you know, maybe did his reporting for the private investigation case and then kind of took off on his own with this. And that is what led to him interviewing Randall Adams at length and then needing to find David Paris finding him in prison on different separate charges, interviewing him. And then by then he's, he's hooked. He's got to know. So he films all the interviews sort of at this time and then has to find somebody to like help him pay for these reenactments that he wants to do and make this film. And it took him a while to get it made. But you're right. The reenactment thing was revolutionary. Documentarians do not make up a narrative. They do not create imagery for you to observe in this way. They're, they they want to document what they believe are facts for you. But Errol Morris specifically was defying convention here and went out of his way to create this new style to tell the story he wanted to tell, which is essentially human beings are fallible and this man is innocent. And the reason he's there is probably because the police don't want to mess up their perfect conviction record. It's pretty messed up. But let's just go ahead and launch into into the premise here. So I just took some loose notes because I mean, this isn't a movie plot, so we're not going to deconstruct it like that. But we'll just kind of jump and get thoughts or whatever as we go. Yep. 
Randall Adams talks about getting into Dallas on a Friday, has a job on a Saturday, feels like he's meant to be there. He went to work and no one was there. He left and ran out of gas and walked out with a gas can. David stopped. He thought he was out of gas. Then it cuts to David Harris in a jumpsuit talking about taking a pistol and a shotgun. He takes his car from his neighbor. He sees Randall out of gas and picks him up. He smokes weed with him and takes him to a movie. So right away you're watching this and it's, I got to say the way he frames it is pretty stark because I didn't know anything about this when I went to watch it. I just knew I did enough research to see that it was a docu a documentary or a documentary jesus <laughs> we can and, be from across the pond documentary <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so i didn't know what it was about really and so i go to watch it and immediately i'm like that second guy is guilty you know what i mean it's just like he's in the jumpsuit but furthermore he just yeah they're both in a jumpsuit but his is orange and so, so that tells you something different right yeah but furthermore he did this thing and i've known a lot of guys like this and it tends to be guys from the south i'm not saying it's it's all guys from the south but it's a very specific kind of guy from the south that i've known a few of these guys and they do this thing whenever they talk about shit that they shouldn't do and they know they shouldn't do they have this really wry smile about them while they're saying it and i think it's one of those things where they like get across like yeah i wasn't supposed to do it but like you know like i'm charming though you know what i mean and he had a lot of that kind of energy when i was watching immediately i'm like whatever they're laying out the second guy did it you know what i mean well and, and again in this watching i realized something that i had not picked up on yet and it took me a while to get to uh, when when i'm actually listening to the words they're saying the first thing that errol morris clips in from Aunt randall adams is i got a job that day i was eating my breakfast i am a lucky guy i'm supposed to be here and then he cuts to david harris and david is like i had broken into my neighbor's house mm-hmm. and i had gone and I had stolen his gun and I had stolen his car. And I was like, oh, 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 okay. Now that I'm hearing what you're telling me, I know right now. I think it is so wonderful and interesting. You brought up your personal relationship with guys like this, because uh, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about our perceptions of others and our expectations of others and what we take away. Your experience has told you that guys who kind of smile like that and they're just so, so a little too kindly about everything. It just does. It just seems a little off. And he's always got an excuse for his looking up to the side of his head. Cause I, I see it too. I'm the same way. I'm like, this guy's lying. And every time he lies, he looks up and off to the left and you get here I am psychic investigator but it's also like that's life experience it's also the bias that Errol Morris is telling us we have yeah we're filling in these blanks we're filling in what we want to believe now he wants us to believe David Harris is guilty and so we're like yeah 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 and and it turns out he is but yeah (laughs) we will absolutely get to that but I don't think there's a question in anybody's mind not only does the film do a really good job of setting up the case we'll just talk about like the end of it when we get there is like it's pretty definitive so yeah i i think you bring up a really good point to the way that they couch them when you start out too this guy's going through dallas he's kind of a drifter and, and they kind of address it in there which is important as they go along but it's also like he's going through his thing he's getting a job like it seems like a more stable thing whereas this kid is like seems reckless and that could not have been the start of his story 
Yep. But that's where he chose to, to place it. And I think it's doing a really good job with the economy of storytelling, right? Like it's, it's, yes. He wants to paint it immediately so that you know who these guys are and where you're going to fall in the stock. And I would say that's where the, the biased part comes in. But I'm, I don't want to pull him apart for this because I think a good document, uh, document, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A good documentary. We'll yeah. do this. You know, it has its biases. And sure. I don't know if you can make a good documentary if you don't do that. You know, that I feel is in large part where we're going to come down to, because when you couple like he allows people to fill in the blanks for him, all the people he interview says, OK, well, here's a couple things right off the bat. There is no narrator in this documentary. Right. They're documentary. telling the story. <laughs> They're telling the story. The music, which. At the end, I'm going to have my fanboy moment about Philip Glass, but I love him so much. But the music is used purposefully. Yes. Never when David Harris or Randall Adams are speaking is there music. It is silence. It's interspersed at times with the other interviews. But for the most part, the music is almost not the narrator's voice, but it's another voice. It's it is uh, asking you to fill in the blanks of what you've just been shown. And something that's interesting about the reenactments is, as we come to find out, the reenactments very rarely, if ever, reveal the true timeline of events or what really happened or flesh it out in a way that helps you understand. It is reenacting the lies that people are telling, the discrepancies the inaccuracies. And in a way, you have to ask yourself, can I believe my own eyes? Therefore, should I believe these people's eyes? And it's interesting, too, because it's always around the incident. Yeah. They don't show other things. They don't show like people having conversations, like whatever. It's always right at the car where they're like throwing up the milkshake or about to like shoot the car or whatever, or they're showing like at the drive-in movie and they're not, it's not even people having conversations. It's just literally a drive-in movie that's playing the screen of the movies they said they saw that that's all they do with the reenactment. So it's kind of funny to me that people were so outraged by that because I don't know that it's all that persuasive. It's just more showing you the case rather than just hear people talk about the case. Right. Right. And they, show you, well, if, if this is happening the way this person said it, how could this happen the way this person said it? You know, this isn't just, this doesn't line up, you know, and as we get the actual timeline of events and trials and the subsequent things that happened to the other officer or the partner of the officer that was killed, et cetera, et cetera, it illuminates the story even more as you go and you're like, oh, well, that's why they lied about X, Y, Z. That's why they would have forgotten or conveniently misunderstood what happened, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of that in this movie for sure. So a couple months later, Randall was interrogated. He was given a confession to sign. He refused. The cop told them to pick up the pistol and he refused. The cop drew a pistol on him and he still refused. And then I think the cop went storming out of the room. Yeah. That was crazy. Like, I don't know if that's just Randall saying it or not. I'm kind of team Randall in this documentary, if I'm being honest. Like, I tend I think to we believe all are. him. Yeah. 
And he could see it coming a mile down the road, which I immediately picked up on when he's like, pick up this gun. And I was like, fuck, don't pick up that gun because you're going to get your prints on it. And he wouldn't pick up the gun. He wouldn't sign the confession. And so the guy kind of left empty handed. But I wonder how many times stuff like that happens with the cops, like how many times somebody turns off the camera and pulls a revolver or something, you know, they might not even had a camera in the 70s. Oh, no. In the interrogation room, you know. No, they were they had a stenographer come in and then hand type something out after uh, uh, assumedly they had already typed out a faked confession document for the same officers. There's there's a lot of shit going on. Like the rubber hoses were in play here, I'm sure. I think because I've been reflecting a lot lately on why it is called the thin blue line and not Randall Adams is innocent or a death row story or about that night why specifically is it called the thin blue line and i think it's because of how very critical of the police and the justice system and uh, as an extension the death penalty errol morris is and how he thinks we should be too we need to constantly reflect on that i 100 percent agree with you i mean it's pulled from a quote that we'll get around to later but it's talking about how police are the thin blue line that's protecting society from chaos but can you trust the line? And I feel like that's the argument that this doc, this documentary is making outside of Randall Park's innocence. It's trying to make the case that like cops will make up these things. They, they have their own agendas. They have their own reasons. It, they may not even be good reasons. It just so fits in line with everything we know today, because I feel like back in 1988, when this came out, right? Yep. I feel like if you were white, I want to couch it this way because I think this is important. Back in 88, you probably thought the cops were there to protect you. Yeah. Now, obviously, for people of color or if even like you're LBGTQ or any of these things, you're going to think differently. But I think in that era of time, your average white person is not thinking about that. And so this movie is trying to make that case to a society that I don't think is ready to hear that case. Yeah. I mean, it's even before Rodney King, right? Absolutely. I was 91, 92. It's, it's great that you bring this up. Yes, absolutely. Also, specifically, the areas in Texas they're talking about, and I, we'll go over this later, too, I'm sure, but kind of just to zoom in. The town that David Harris is from, Biter, Texas, is the oh. home of the KKK in Texas. So it's, uh, what is that, to sundown town? The way that communities make the choice about who is expendable and who is not, like this young man with all this promise versus this late 20s drifter who's just sort of bumming around on his way to California. And interestingly enough, as um, Edith James, Randall Adams' attorney, brings up, he was 28, he was old enough to execute. And this is a hanging DA, a hanging judge. They like to Kill. That really got the national spotlight too when W was running for president the first time. Yep. Because he was governor of Texas and had overseen more executions than any other governor. They were just rolling through executions. I remember they executed a mentally disabled man. Just they were super proud of it, it seemed like. They just love to kill. Like I've really thought about that. And I, I thought about when I was younger. And I feel like the attitude towards the death penalty was a lot stronger than it is now. And 
it's weird because it seemed like the more Christian somebody was, the more likely they were to get into death penalty territory. <laughs> and that always seemed weird to me when I was younger. But now that I'm older, I think about it. And it's like it's because it's this biblical sense of justice, right? You believe in absolutes. And so the law should be no different as far as you're concerned. They should get the swift, like absolute worst punishment available. Like a lot of these problems would just go away if you did away with the death penalty. Like, honestly, it, it'd be easier. It'd be cheaper. It would give people a chance if they were innocent to actually get out of prison rather than wind up getting killed it would solve a lot of problems. Not to mention, it is incredibly expensive and labor and time consuming to house somebody on death row, take it all the way through the appeals process, and then finally kill them. It's wildly ridiculous. Now, we should do a whole other episode about the prison industrial complex in our country and the uh, school to prison pipeline and about oppressed peoples in America and how prison is often just legalized slavery. How many products are made in prisons? How many services are done by how many call centers? Do you know how many call centers are run out of prisons in this fucking country? Like that one, I didn't know. It's wild. It's wild. And as somebody who has experience volunteering in the prison system with men who were absolutely not on death row or anywhere near it, who were serving long sentences, I recognize now how attuned I am to how much people in this movie talk about he didn't act the way we wanted him to. They didn't answer right, you know, and when we get to the witnesses that finally kind of put the, the nail in his coffin, they had the affect that the court was looking for. That woman shrieked and pointed across the courtroom and was so certain of what she saw and our biases and our wanting to see what we want to see and wanting to be reinforced in what we believe will lead us to not see the truth about other people because it doesn't conveniently fit in our construct of what they're supposed to be. Agreed. Snap, snap, snaps. <laughs> <laughs> Stop killing people. A cop says he had a friendly conversation with Randall and he had no remorse and overacted his innocence. So this is part of the problem, too, because like we talked about our biases watching this at the beginning, right? Yeah. Like I, I talked about the smiling thing and all of that kind of stuff. Yep. And this guy's also operating off a of bias, too. But the difference is we're watching a movie and then I'm going to talk about that movie. And I already know how all of this turned out at the end. He's doing a job and it's different. Like you're in charge of somebody's life and I feel like you should be weighing the facts more than the interview. But clearly he's weighing the interview more than the facts. Yeah. It's staggering. It's staggering. Yeah. A and why? Why do they need so badly for this to be true instead of being like, you know, it really seems like He's convinced he didn't do it. Don't you think we should look into this just a little bit more? You touched on it already, or actually you outright said it, like they had to get somebody by Christmas. Like they were upset that a month had gone by and they hadn't gotten anybody for shooting this police officer. Nobody's going to miss him. That gets said later, too. He's just a drifter. What do you care? As we come to see as people just talk and talk and reveal who they are, there is so much xenophobia, so much racism, so much racism, and so much classism, elitism, assumptions about people in poverty, assumptions about people coming from certain areas in society, assumptions about areas of town and where they're driving through at the time. 
wild. Thank God this was so long ago and we solved all of those problems, right? You said it. Let's have a drink. Cheers. We did it. United States is perfect. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Speaking of Bush. Yeah. So Robert Wood left his ticket book in the car because he was going to tell the car that to turn on its lights. His female partner, the first on the force, stayed in the car. By the way, I went looking up her name. I couldn't find her name. They never say it once. It, Isn't it might have that been... interesting? Well, <laughs> I think it's interesting. I think it was an oversight that they yeah. just forgot to mention who the fuck she was. This is something that I did notice with this documentary because that was my initial reaction is there's a couple female people and they don't identify them. And I was like, come on. But then I realized as I went through to watch again, they don't identify a lot of people in this. Exactly. And I realized it's just this one convention of documentaries that had not come up yet, which is just show their name at the bottom of the screen and what they do. Yeah. And they just hadn't gotten there yet. You know what I mean? Like, it looks beautiful when you watch it, but there's no names at the bottom. Well, and I wonder how purposeful or not that was. I wonder if he didn't hold back the names so you were more focused on kind of following the string of events and the little threads he's throwing out to you. And again, learning about people through their relationships to each other, which yeah. is kind of how he's framing everything versus the police who are like, well, <laughs> it must be that drifter. But even the police, when they come in, you have to like really listen to what they're saying to figure out Ooh. who they are a lot of the time, right? Like there was one guy I thought was a cop and I had to go back through my notes and change them because I realized like, nope, he's the DA. <laughs> it was yeah. like stuff like that. So yeah, it was one of those things. I think if he had put the names at the bottom, it, it might've worked a little easier, but I'm not sure that they did that back then. So I'm, I'm going to give him a pass on this one. I just, I don't think it's a convention that was thought of yet. Right. It could have been just a F you too. Like, That's true. You, you, you pay attention, damn it. You figure it out. <laughs> I want you to really pay attention to this. Keep your phone down. Right. No, I he realize it's plugged into a wall, but keep it down. All right. <laughs> right. He's the inventor of a specific interview filming system called the Interatron and something that's still used to this day really frequently, but he pioneered it for this film because he was having such trouble with his interviews, people looking off screen, people getting fidgety, nervous not being able to speak clearly or directly because this is not handheld. He has a full-on film camera, lights, everything. And he stages things because I believe he wants control. You know, he wants to make sure he's fully in control of his people. But the Interatron allows the, I almost said victim, the subject of the interview <laughs> to be looking at a video screen of his face but it's a two-way mirror and right behind it is the camera. So they're looking directly into the camera as if they're looking into his eyes and responding to him. And he's just behind the whole rig asking his questions, having this conversation. And I believe maybe because of the confines of the prison specifically, he's not able to do that with David Harris and Randall Adams, but with the rest of his interviews, he is. So this also speaks to how he defies convention in actually speaking to people like he's able to break through another layer of their artifice. And as a consequence, he gets really raw, honest stuff from people. Anyway, the female partner was the first on the force. She stayed in the car before Woods got to a car. He pulled her over and he was shot in the arm and chest. His partner ran out and forgot to call an ambulance. 
She dropped her milkshake, shot at the car multiple times, and couldn't remember the plate number. So I actually did find her name right here. It's uh, Teresa Turco. I actually did research on this and found it. I just Good. I, I thought I left it out of my notes. So the shot I think that sticks out the most of the recreations is you see this chocolate Burger King yeah. milkshake like kind of fly up and then hit the ground. And uh, it's kind of evocative when you watch it, but it's also surreal i guess you know like yes. milkshakes don't flip that way <laughs> and and the milkshake in slow motion just shot epic and of course what he's showing us is well if the milkshake is spilled on the side of the road like it is in the crime scene diagram she wasn't gun drawn at the back of the car with the flashlight plate. she testified she was she was sitting in the car fucking finishing her milkshake yeah she drank her milkshake yeah we'll find out later but she has two stories multiple yep there's the stories that start before the trial and there's the stories that start going to trial and there's the stories that happen while they're at trial so there's a lot of moving pieces to this case <laughs> so police had no leads they're just looking for a blue vega there was discrepancies with time she remembered everything but the incident under hypnosis even a previous plate number that's something that is not done anymore the whole hypnosis thing people right? really believed in hypnosis in the 80s I, I mean i'm sure you remember too when we were kids oh. how many times did we see something where like somebody would have an alien sighting and you'd be like they're a kook and then they'd be like well i went to hypnosis and there was last time and you'd be like ooh cuz we okay. all believed in <laughs> maybe <laughs> Like, I wanted a pocket watch so bad so I could hypnotize oh. people. <laughs> exactly. Well, and it was so amazing that stylistically he chose to show the pocket watch in all these scenes when they're referring to her. But then again, continuously throughout the rest of the film as if, are you being hypnotized? Are you being drawn into these lies? Like, are are or interesting? Are, are you able to follow the timeline? Like, what does that message continue to mean for him? Yeah, that's interesting because I did think about that. And to me, sometimes I think it meant how much time does Randall Park have because he's on death row, right? Like sometimes I think it's like how much time has he spent behind bars and it's unfair. Right. And then sometimes I thought it was an illusion to like the time doesn't work out with a lot of these things. But I'm betting it's all of those plus what you're saying. Like, I think it's all of it. Right. It's definitely a metaphor he uses in a few different ways, which makes this artful. A lot of documentaries. Yeah, I'm just I'm just leading into it now. <laughs> They're yeah. not artful, yeah. you know? No. And this is it's been referred to as a nonfiction film noir. And I think that really nails it. It gives you all the elements you want in this sort of like oh, grimy whodunit. But it's real. And it had real life consequences and consequences from the film. Just juicy. Yeah, absolutely. So cop killings were usually cleared quickly. This takes months. Neighbors reported a blue comet stolen. Cops hear rumors that David bragged he killed the cop. His friends confirmed that he said he killed the cop because he had stolen the car. He hid the gun in a sock and butol and then put it in the swamp. David was interrogated and denied he was involved. Then he said he was in the car, but Randall shot him. The cops said it matched the facts of the case. I find it weird that David is bragging about it. And when they bring him in, he's not only able to produce the gun, but it's the 
car that he stole and once again bragged about killing a cop and they're immediately like well it must be this other guy you know why and it's two jurisdictions so the cop in david's hometown who deals with him a lot who we hear from and who honestly feels like the one police officer on the up and up and all of this yes. he, it's the way he comes across and it's the way he's framed and it's the way that the lawyers talk about him as well yep. for randall it seems like he's reasonable about it you know right and he's the one who says well you know okay so i start talking to him and he always comes across as affable if he thinks he can get away with it he'll keep telling the lie but as soon as i confront him he'll tell me the truth which hold on to that tidbit because errol morris did (laughs) yes he did right and then the cop goes on and he says he took me right down to where the gun was he was so honest once i pushed him a little more he gave me more and more information and so this cop inviter goes to dallas and says i think i know something about this cop killing talk to this guy david he's telling me he did it and it's those cops who are like oh no but maybe he can flip on the guy that we've got that we're interested in you know what i mean wild and this has nothing to do with that really but I was amazed that he was able to keep a gun in total working order in a swamp. Like, that's nuts. I mean, I guess he sprayed something on it or whatever, but I thought that was kind of crazy as the well. The cop was floored, too. He said it was like it was a specific kind of oil and he'd oiled the yeah, sock. Butyl or something. He'd oiled the sock and he just put the sock down in the water. But he also made sure to mention that he was pretty sure David really enjoyed watching him fishing around for the gun in there and had a smile on his face the whole time. And that is something we see again and again and again and something that is incredible friends again these people you cannot make them up you cannot write these people you cannot script these people you have to find them in texas they're real (laughs) and they're wild but they all say you know he he didn't have conscience he didn't think about the things the way you and me did or he wouldn't feel guilty about things the way you and me did or he would just Square up and down, he'd done a thing. And why? Why would you do it? And and he wouldn't have a reason for it. And he was just, he, he just sounds like a sociopath. And I don't know what the term would be. That Like, that might be it. I, I'm hesitant towards a lot of this stuff because Amanda's got a psychology degree. And so I feel like she's trumped me on everything. So I, I watch not. Yes. when I say this stuff now. But I will say, you can tell he processes things different. Like you yes. were saying, I get the impression that he thinks it's okay to do all of this stuff. Yeah. But he also knows that other people aren't going to look at it that way. Yes. And yes. Yeah. It's almost like a game for him. Somebody finds it and it's like, okay, but I'm going to make you like work for it. Yeah. And he knows how to get along. He knows what moves to make to survive and that being kind and affable will get you farther, you know, or at least being charming. And because that's what everybody says about him. He was just a kind young boy. How would he murder anybody? It seemed like his friends didn't really they like knew. him that they, much, you though. Tell. And I'm sure he fucked with them. I'm sure he fucked with them. Did you ever have a friend when you were growing up that was just like, at some point you were like, I can't hang out. Something bad's sure. going to happen. Yeah, for sure. That was the vibe I got. Because those people, later on, when you hear that they did something, you're oh, like, oh, yeah. yeah. for sure. Uh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I didn't like that guy that at all. Sense. And then you have to reckon with the fact like, well, you hung out with him for a couple of right. months, you know. Right. Because you're a dumb teenager or whatever. Well, but. absolutely. Like, how many heart to hearts were these guys really having? You know, they're just bragging and oh, shooting the shit. You know what I mean? So it, it stands. 16 year old boys, not the smartest, not the most like in touch with their emotions or anything like that. But even Hooter, I think that was one of their names in the credits I saw. Even Hooter <laughs> saw right through him. That's the thing. You can't flash 
a Hooter Nashville up on the screen and have people not lose their shit and <laughs> right. come out of the story, you know? But also, <laughs> I, it's interesting that you mentioned that their names weren't flashed up. Like, it also gives you this feeling like, man, you can just be minding your own business and anybody can just ruin your life by telling a lie. Just anybody. Doesn't even matter what their name is or their relationship to you, you know? And that's intense. Yeah. Randall said David had an arsenal. He asked him not to play with it, and he shot it out the window. David gave it up and put it under the driver's seat. They went to a drive-in movie and saw the student body and swinging cheerleaders. <laughs> I've actually seen swinging Have cheerleaders I when I was in high school. I gotta watch it. Yeah. I gotta watch it. I'm so into it. It's, it's not oh. great. It's exactly what you think it is, but acted even worse than you think it is. <laughs> it's not good. It's probably on Tubi or something like that right okay. now. Randall wanted to leave. David dropped him at the motel. Randall got a pack of smokes. He saw David and told him to drop back by if he wanted a job. Randall got in his room where his brother slept. He watched the end of the Carol Burnett show and watched some of the news. And I think all of this is important because they're establishing the timeline for Randall. Randall told the stenographer his story. She came back with the statement and he signed it when he saw it was what he liked. She did the fake confession before. Yeah. Randall didn't remember anything involving the crime until he gets back to his room, according to the cop. The news says he signed a confession, which he says he didn't. He's saying he's not accounting for the time, but it sounds like Randall's absolutely accounting for the time, at least in the documentary. He's saying everything that he did. The news runs off with the story because it's more sensational. If he signs a confession or the cop leaks something that he signed the confession... You know what I mean? To to sort of get the pitchforks out ahead of the trial. When the community is still up in arms, a police officer has been shot and there is no one uh, arrested. What's going on? You know, are we next? Is this fear in the community? Right. So I can see why the media wants to run with this. Oh, we got him. There's an element of this that's not explored in the documentary. Morris goes to pains to talk about how Vader has the Ku Klux Klan there, right? And we hear about how David is this young person who's a local and Randall's a drifter. But it's also interesting to me that the cop who was shot, I think, was Latino, wasn't he? Yeah. They just kind of show a newspaper clipping that says something about it. So I guess they like glance on it. But it's kind of interesting to me because it almost feels like. Maybe there's an element of this of like the community is like, yeah, we're going to let him go because he just killed this minority. So he was doing us a favor and we'll just pin it on a drifter. I mean, maybe I'm mistaken on this because they don't yeah. get into it in the, in the movie, but I almost wonder if that's something behind it. Well, I feel like there's enough of those threads that Morris dangles down about this very thing for you to kind of pick up the theme. And again, this might be an assumption too, but it's just appearance because they show us a few pictures of the Officer Woods who is murdered. Mm -hmm. And so it's judging by appearance that we assume he's a Hispanic or Latino. I thought it said it on a newspaper article too, though. Did it? Oh, maybe like in the print that we're allowed to read. Yeah, so it's not very much, but I thought they said something about it. I I could be mistaken, but... No, you might... And it comes back around later, but what is said about it is that when Randall Adams' attorneys go to Vider to do their uh, discovery and start interviewing David Harris, people who might know him and sort of building this alibi for Randall Adams, that's when the DA Mulder goes the week ahead 
They are these no- from the East Coast. The Northeast. Uh, right. The Northeast. Yep. From the no- So what? The Northeast part of Texas? Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, let, me, let me break it down for people who don't speak old racism. He's saying Jewish. There you go. So thank you for the translation, Google. <laughs> yeah. We needed that, right? <laughs> so he went there ahead. And he says that these attorneys are uh, liberal leaning and they are coming here to uh, try to defend. Uh, and, and the way that it is said that the DA spun it was essentially about race. It's, it's so nuanced and alluded to. It's really hard to describe right now what was said without playing the quote. You know what I mean? It's a dog whistle thing. Yes. And, uh, so this is a different example, but this is the same thing. I like to talk about the Southern strategy, which is something that Republicans had employed for a long, long time. I think they still do to a degree, but not as blatantly as they used to. And they would do things like they go around on the stump and they'd say, I'm going to be hard on crime. And it's a dog whistle because the normal person hears hard on crime and they think like, okay, they're going to get police officers or whatever. Racist person hears hard on crime and they understand that what they mean is like, I'm going to make sure all the minorities are locked up. Like it's a dog whistle. It's like a way of saying it without saying it. Yep. Interpret it how you will. And remember, this is the DA that had a hundred percent conviction record. Yeah. A hundred percent success rate. So the other thing is he's not going to let Randall Adams walk away with his percentage. Mm-mm. And he, he, in fact, retired with that hundred percent success rate. And in fact, you'll notice he was the only person not interviewed for this documentary that they spoke about. That's because he got an asterisk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. So it's it's good you bring this up because I feel like this is sort of hanging, you know, like a stench around this whole story. This dog whistling, this, um, you know, good old boys were all in on the understanding. We all got the party line on this. Yeah. And it's interesting how it plays out what that looks like it would be so much more overt if it came out today i feel like yeah it's so subtle it's not a criticism it's just like it's just noticing the time i think that they would spend a few minutes just out and out saying it and and backing it up sure but i think in 88 you just can't come out and say it you know what i mean also like impact and artistry like, is it more effective to allow people to draw their conclusions? Like, we came away convinced of what we come away with. It's true. And knowing how things pan out, we know we're, we were very, uh, it's, it's correct. But, you know, is it more impactful to just let people come or to spell it out for them? If Errol Morris is thinking, both as a private investigator and a filmmaker, I want to, make sure I'm making the best case possible. And in order to do that, I can't just say this is what happened. Believe me, I got to prove it. I got to show it. Yeah. So much of his evidence went into future court cases about this. And because he really hadn't tainted the well by like saying it out loud, letting us agree with what we saw. That's true. You know what I mean? I feel like there may have been that might have been an ulterior motive on his part. Well, then he is a much smarter person than I am because I would have just shouted it. <laughs> I know. Come on, you I would guys. have done voiceover and shouted it. <laughs> this is the fucking guy. This guy. <laughs> Teresa, remember the car? It matched the comet. The cops have been looking for a Vega based off of the description. So right away, case is broken. They're setting it up from the beginning. They're looking for the wrong car. They even grab uh, Randall while they're looking for the wrong car, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. None of this I works know. out. None of it works out, but it doesn't matter. The DA saw no signs of the car being hit by gunfire except for one spot. His daughter then demolished the car, to which I'm like, why is his daughter demolishing the car? That doesn't make sense. That's pretty crazy. They'd released the evidence back into the owner's custody because I'm sure they kept it for a while after it was retrieved from David Harris. But then they, the cop says, I looked it over. I didn't see that. We asked him again because this is all after it had been released back to the owner that it had been stolen from. And then his daughter is just out driving around mining her, well, doing something and totaled it out. Then the evidence shit. It's gone. I had assumed the way they said that, that they totaled it because of that. No, I think she just wrecked it. <laughs> <laughs> probably right. <laughs> so That's what it looked like. It looked like, whoa, girl, rolled it. Not to hive evidence, more just poor police work. Yeah. Very bad investigation. Uh, Randall's lawyer, Edith James, admits she can be gullible, but her opinion is that her clients are always guilty except him. Douglas Mulder retired from the DA's office with no defeats. She brought in Dennis White because of his experience and thought it would be a slam dunk. He says one of the motel workers told people where he was staying. He felt he was being watched. When he investigated, he found one cop he thought was trustworthy. Sam Kittrell, right? Like, that's the cop. The cop told him that after the murder, David robbed the store and had a man with a shotgun to his throat. And once again, they're like doubling down. It's like. Man, this guy just did an armed robbery and you're still going to go after this other guy. Yep. And the escalation that they describe from his further crimes, it's like, again, what we know now would tell us, oh, this is the making of a um, potential future serial killer. This guy is cold blooded, to say the very least. No conscience. No conscience and just absolutely no scruples. The town of Eider thought that the cop was black. He he said that as well. That so. was it. That was how they played it. The DA had played it so that they were like, why would we help you? He did the a good thing by killing a black cop. Right. Yeah. Right. David admits to committing crimes while on probation and turned himself in for the robberies and fighter. He said he supposedly signed a confession. Edith pointed out to the DA inviter that he was going to have to go through the youth council that all the utensils of the murder, meanwhile, were provided by David. Dennis tried to introduce the crime, saying he was on a spree. They wouldn't let him. Randall says the kid's story is two hours later. David said he slumped down while Randall was pulled over and shot the cop. He stopped at the motel and told them not to worry about it. The lawyer said the store wasn't sure the time he got cigarettes, which is it's interesting to me that they don't allow this evidence that will help out Randall. But then evidence like that, you know, where the the person at the store can't remember the time for the cigarettes and things like that. That's okay to get entered into the record. It's just like the rot going all the way up, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And it seems so obvious, but at the time... It seemed to be the way it was. It would have been so accepted for all of this to be going on, it seems like. The DA says his brother was watching a wrestling match with him. He changed his story because he didn't want to get charged for perjury. That's a lot of... I don't know. That's what I'm saying. More conjecture. More just making up your... your, Well, it must have been X, Y, Z. Because he's saying that Randall's brother refused to testify for him further at risk of of uh, uh, incriminating himself or jeopardizing himself in another crime. 
it's that same rot you're talking about. You assume that Randall and his brother are XYZ criminals, rotten to the core, whatever. So this must be what they were thinking or doing. It's just your opinion, man. Yeah. So it's like you're going on a, on this movie and you're saying this stuff, but like you can't prove it. Like that couldn't have been introduced into court. It's so sketchy. It's so sketchy. Uh, Teresa's story didn't match the other testimony. She was behind the car. The coat changed. The driver had bushy hair later, right? Like all these things don't quite match up with what was said before. And what I found intriguing is they showed her initial statement being published in newspapers. Like you could Mm -hmm. go back and see what her initial statement was and nobody chose to do that or would let uh, Randall's uh, lawyers enter that onto the record. Just wild. Just wild. Yeah. Yeah. Something that they could read in a paper. Right. Randall's lawyer thought he would get off until three witnesses showed up. A witness said she saw Randall shoot the cop. Emily Miller says that she's always finding murders and such and figuring it out before the police. She went to eat with her husband, R.L., at a restaurant. They slowed down by the murder scene. He heard the shots. He saw a man who looked different. His hair was dishwater blonde, right? Right. So, like, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. But when you're looking at the lady, you're just like, I already don't believe what you're saying because you're one of those people who, like, hears neighbors <laughs> arguing and you grab the binoculars and you start yep. conjecturing everything that's going on. Like, I, I love my grandma dearly who passed away decades ago. She used to listen to the police scanner and she would come up with all of these narratives while she was listening yep. to the police scanner. <laughs> yep. Oh, I know what's going on here. And this woman, you know, this is one of the interviews that really packs the punch and kind of, oh, wow. Oh, what's really going on here? And it comes really far into the movie. It's over an hour into the movie when they finally reveal that they have these three eyewitnesses, two who saw or were nearby uh, in a car at the time of the shooting and one that passed immediately prior to the shooting, both in separate cars. First time I saw this movie, I remember being like, is this real? Is this really real? Is she really a how is this not scripted? Because she (laughs) starts off talking about like, oh, I always thought I'd be a detective. I just love (laughs) detective movies. I always have my eyes open. I'm always looking. And she looks like she has her eyes open all the time. I mean, it's the 80s. Yes, her eyebrows are plucked to the gods <laughs> she's this platinum blonde just looks a little wired up and really intense. there was some cocaine <laughs> i'm pretty sure there was some cocaine it's, maybe it's mini thins or diet pills you or might something. be right she doesn't look like she has cocaine money the the thing that starts happening is they intersperse her footage of her interview with the courtroom drawings of her oh whoever was drawing that day was on fire she had black hair at the time and they just draw her pointing this long clawed finger with all these (laughs) rings across the courtroom and these wild eyes just you know but crazy eyes just crazy eyes and she is so certain she solved the crime she is absolutely certain (laughs) she also took that reward money Yeah, we'll get back to that in a second. Uh Uh, (laughs) The lawyer points out that she was doing paperwork for work, but she was already fired. They were booked for a domestic assault with knives. They suddenly said they were witnesses. A friend of RL said he'd say what they wanted if they paid him. Yeah, so right away, like, we don't believe these witnesses. It's, uh, It's not a good look. 
Well, even her husband in his interview is like, yeah, she's well, yeah. <laughs> He's like, uh, I was running drugs and she called the cops on me. Well, no, he says she called the cops on me and said I was running drugs. And when they pulled me over, they didn't find any drugs. Not the implication was he was running drugs. He just didn't have them in the trunk, though, right? Like, well, I thought that was the implication he was saying. I'm not assuming anything. I'm just saying (laughs) this crazy white lady called the cops on her black husband. She carried her own husband. Yes. Even when my husband and she admits to it too freely, it's worth watching the film just for these people only because wow, wow, wow. I'd be willing to bet if you went onto YouTube and put the thin blue line Karen, it would come up, right? Like (laughs) that clip's got to come up. Something's got to come up. Always wanted to be a detective. <laughs> the salesman said he saw the incident and saw the two people in the car. He changed the story on the dock multiple times. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, this is the witness who was on their side, though, right? Well, this is the witness who saw two people in the car. The only witness to see two people in the car. Right. Which which is David's story. So this would be great for the prosecution oh, okay. of Randall Adams, okay, right? Gotcha. Right. That's why they use him. Dennis said in death penalty cases, they have to prove that they could do it again. Dr. Grigson came in and noted that Randall showed no remorse. Dennis said that's because he's innocent. The doc told Randall to copy some writings. He asked to tell the meaning of a Rolling Stone gathers no moss. A person that stands still is hard to get. Then a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. He says it's better to hold on to something than to let go. Then he asks about his family. Grigson's nickname, as you alluded to earlier, is Dr. Death. He always testifies that people will commit violent crimes in the future. 99% of the people are sentenced to death. Dr. Death said Randall could work all day and kill all night. He said that if he was released, he would butcher people. He talked to Randall. For a total of 15 minutes. I mean, that's like the secret sauce to these things, right? Like this guy 100% of the time says that it's going to be a violent crime. So you get a DA like this who's never lost a case. He probably leans on this guy quite a bit, I would imagine. Yep. And it's just like, you know, he's going to shriek and say something to him. And that's how he gets called in on this and probably makes money off of DA cases, right? Absolutely. And it, it's like you say, and it, it gets brought up in the movie, uh, uh, Randall showed no remorse when asked about killing the police officer because he didn't do it. Right, yeah. How could he show fucking remorse for something he didn't fucking do, you know? What do we expect of people, all of these people, including this shit psychiatrist doctor, expected something from him i expect him to act this way or this way and if he doesn't it must mean guilt errol morris definitely goes out of his way to show clips where randall is being very clear in the timeline clear in his recollection of things and he's very clear on his recollection of his conversation with this dr Griegson and how you know he spent maybe 15 20 minutes with me and then two and a half hours on the stand just blathering about all his accolades and all the things he's done and why he should be believed. And I think back to how Errol Morris even found this case. And it was through this doctor who gave him this list of names that included this fucking guy or helped to wrongfully convict, you know? That's the insane thing about this. Right? He does such a poor job, it would seem. But then he must believe on some level that they're guilty because he points him out to this, right? Like Exactly. That's what I'm saying. 
it, it, or he's so convinced of his ability to instinctually know things about people or he's just a fucking crooked rotten man yeah that has no com- he's the real monster that he's the real sociopath that has no compunction about putting people on death row again probably because he sees them as less than for whatever reason it's kind of unfortunate too because we don't get any clips of him right because he did an interview with them before he met Randall, the whole purpose changed when he found that. Yeah. But I, I'm guessing none of the clips with the doctor met. And then he must have either felt no need to follow up or the doctor refused to follow up. So I don't know. It, right. It's the one area I would have liked a little bit more of, but it may not have been possible. Exactly. I think there may have been something standing in the way or maybe simply refusal. Maybe it was the guy got into what Errol Morris was laying down uh, ahead of time and it was just yeah. like, no, I'm not sitting down with you again. <laughs> exactly. Well, and Errol Morris was initially there to, to, to investigate him as yeah. a private investigator. So it might have all played into that. Errol Morris goes on to make a film called Dr. Death, but it's about a different doctor. Yeah, I noticed that too. And the the death penalty, more specifically the electric chair and how this doctor wants to make a more efficient electric <sighs> chair. All of this is so rotten. So they have this part where Randall's talking about how when the DA is prosecuting a death penalty case, he's talking about murdering you, which I thought was very plain, but it's true. I mean, yeah. it's true. They're they're looking to to get you on the chair, especially in that particular case. It really seemed like they wanted somebody to execute. Yep. Um, David said he had no interest in finding out what happened with Randall at this point, which. Uh, yeah, that's telling. Yeah. The defense wasn't allowed to say the Miller's car was too steamed to see out out for the murder or that the Miller's decided to testify for money. A reporter found that Emily's daughter was on a robbery charge at the same time and then dismissed. Randall could not get a retrial. All of that is just infuriating. Isn't it? So clearly they were tampering with witnesses. And then and then they're like, no, 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 you can't get a retrial because all the way up, they're just like, nope, we don't want to revisit this. We kind of know it's bullshit and we don't want to revisit it. You know, they tease that out even deeper that they wouldn't go any further with Randall because they knew it would end in a mistrial or his charges being overturned essentially. So, right. Yeah. His appeal lawyer says that he wouldn't argue his innocence. It didn't matter. They voted nine Oh against him. The judge commented later that the appellate court gave him an a, the Supreme court reversed it eight one. So he wouldn't get the death penalty. The governor gave him life so that they wouldn't retrial him. Right. That's what you're talking about is like, exactly. So he now he's stuck in, in prison for life at this point. Dennis has not done a trial since because justice can be miscarried so easily. And I think he says something like, just let somebody else do it. Like, I'm, I'm done. If justice can miscarry so badly, I'd rather do something else. Yeah, it's just it's awful because this was a guy who clearly, clearly really was trying to get this guy off and thought this case would be a slam dunk. And it's just like, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, David hit a woman over the head with a rolling pin. He was seen in his underwear when they brought him in. They had a similar crime in Germany for attacking an officer. Later, he was in jail for in California. So the cop, like every time he had something happen, some kind of sexual assault, he would call back and find out what David was doing just because he kept this guy on his radar because he's the that, good cop, right? Exactly. And Viter, the good cop that the one that kept tabs on this guy who we knew was no good. 
Yeah. Um, David admits he's guessing at the times of the crimes he didn't have a watch on. He thinks Randall says times because he wanted to deceive the jury. Right. So right away, he's like painting out. Oh, no, this other guy's lying about this. But like he's even like, but I don't know. So it's like, come on, dude. So we're supposed to trust you guessing at times rather than a person who thinks they know the time. Exactly. The salesman says the other witnesses were paid for lying. If the DA wants to hang you, you're hung. That was pretty profound when you hear that. It's basically what the documentary is about. Yep. Emily said her husband didn't get a good look at the murderer. They picked out a man in the lineup with bushy hair. So that seems sketchy. And he even says in the the movie that the guy had like dishwater blonde hair, right? Doesn't say anything about bushy hair. Nobody picks Randall Adams out of the lineup except for David Harris. And specifically Emily Miller, cuckoo eyes, says that she initially picks the wrong person. And the detectives help her pick the right person. Errol Morris, I don't know if he fully fleshes that out in the movie, but he later talks about it in several interviews. And that was his, I know what I have to do. Yeah, she's also the one that her daughter was in prison. Exactly. Or or, or like on some kind of charge as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they bring in the other witness to testify against the Millers and say that she's never said an honest thing in her life and everything she says is lies. That's that other older woman they have. It's a saga. It feels like a saga by the time you're done with this movie. It departs from documentary into a lot of different realms. A cop talked to David who said he had been shot by a jealous boyfriend. He leaned on David and David confessed that he killed the boyfriend after breaking into his house and trying to take his girlfriend. He made jokes while they were retrieving his weapon. The cops said David is always friendly and respectful to him, but something must have happened to him. Then we get an interview with David where he talks about how he had a brother that drowned. His brother wandered into a neighbor's pool when his dad wasn't watching. He took the brunt of his dad's guilt and he liked his younger brother better. He did a lot of things to get even with his dad. So this is when he's really leaning on David. You're starting to get intentionality as to why he's doing these things. And then real quick before we leave his brother, I I can't help. But when they're starting to tease that story out and talking about how that day David and his brother were playing in their own kiddie pool. And we've already heard that his brother is drowned. Was I alone in being like, oh, my God, did he? He killed his brother. No, when he was I 100% thought he killed his brother until okay. he says he drowned in the other kiddie pool. So even then, I'm left <laughs> could, with could this be like, but, right? You know, yeah. all right, just going to say thank you. Thank but either you. way, you know, it's either setting up that he was this cold when he was young or it's setting up a reason for why he acts the way he does. He is justifying his behavior when he's telling this story. He's saying, I guess I just hurt myself. Yes. You might be right about the sociopath thing because. He's saying, like, I'm only hurting myself. But the irony is, like, he's literally hurting other people and killing other people. Exactly. And he doesn't even see it then, you know? Yep. Uh, In David's final interview in 1985, three years before the film came out, he talks about scapegoats. They ask if he's innocent, and he says, I'm sure he is. And then he confesses to the murder. So right away, like, he confesses to the murder. He's on death row for this other murder that they just talked about. So he has nothing to lose. And I think that's why he confesses on this. 
Because it's just like, well, he wants it. And, you know, he's already fucked. He knows that. Remember, he's got this relationship now with Errol Morris. And like the other cop said, you know, when he thinks you know the truth and you push him on it, he'll come around. He'll tell you what's going on. But even then, he starts to give you what you want and lie a little bit, right? But in this yeah. particular case, I think it's because he has nothing to lose. I think he, like, leans on him the way the cop said. Right. But, like, he has no reason to, like, lie after that because it's like he's already going to get executed, you know? Exactly. And it's not, uh, we should be very clear, it's not a confession where he says, I killed that cop that day. It's teased out. And it's essentially, he affirms Errol Morris. He's like, well, do you know he's innocent? And he's like, I know he's innocent. How do you know? Because I'm the one who'd know. Yeah. You know, and then he he keeps asking him and, and kind of all in this area of why do you think the police believed you? Why did it? it, 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 it. But it's all the, the same dance and it all essentially winds up with him confessing. That's yeah. what you're left with. And it's really interesting to note that Errol Morris's camera just broke and he yep. couldn't get another one. And so he went in and he was like, I had this crappy recorder and I just had to do it. It was the one time I could talk to him and we did it. And he thinks in, I, I heard an interview with him. He's like, I think in that moment, us being face to face without the camera may have been why. And, and he's also said in later interviews when he asked, you know, did you do it? He nodded at, he was nodding at him at times and affirming him in ways that you can't hear on the tape. Looking at the a different view here, that showing the tape recorder while it's playing that's such a staple in documentaries now. <laughs> it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. We've got such a relationship with these two, well, the three main players, the documentarian and the two convicts, both Randall and David. And knowing what we know, it's like we're in our mind's eye. We can picture David Harris when he's saying this stuff because we know him so well now. And, and it all creates this very compelling uh, vulnerable moment for him and he kind of says the truth and hard out credits that's that with a little bit of text on the end yeah yeah the text basically says that uh randall adams is still serving a life sentence david harris is on death row for the murder of mark mays what it says I will say I immediately went to the internet after I watched this because I'm like Good. he had to get off right he did he did this was probably way more rewarding than watching this in 1988 because it took a little bit to get him off. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And uh, again, there's a fantastic interview with Errol Morris and Bill Moyers, not the boomer turd Bill Maher, Bill Moyers. No, no, the guy who was with PBS, right? Yeah, exactly. And he did the whole Joseph Campbell, uh, Bill mm -hmm. Moyers. In that interview, he talks about how it needed to be both the pressure from the film and how compelling uh, the story itself was and a judicial system that was willing to look at it uh, from a new angle, essentially. And those things wound up happening and Randall Adams wound up being exonerated and released from prison. So let's get to the theme here. I, I'm just going to keep it simple. We don't need to pull this apart too much. It's when the DA wants you to hang your hung, right? I mean, that's basically the, the theme. I want to say there's another theme in here. Randall Adams talks about determinism a lot, essentially. 
I don't know what brought me to that town, but I wound up there. I don't know what got me in that car, but I wound up there. I don't know why I got that job and it didn't, but I wound up there. And as we see it all unfold, you see how the dominoes lined up against him because of what the police and the DA and then later the judicial system wanted and essentially made that theory of determinism a reality. So maybe if he'd have had a different judicial system, it it wouldn't have been a predetermined destiny for him, as it were, and still wound up not being because at the end he got out. Yeah, but Jesus, dude, he was in prison for, I I mean, I think they said he went away in 79. So it was like a full decade that he was in prison. Over, over a decade because he'd been prison for like 13 years. But Predetermined destiny versus free will, I feel like, is a theme that plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, unsatisfying. There's no answer, but it's something that comes up again and again and again. So I'd like to say that semicolon, do we really have free will or are we following a determined path? Yeah, fair. That's definitely how he looks at it. He definitely spent a lot of shoe leather talking about that stuff. Right. The title of the film was selected because of the prosecution's final argument, in which he said the police are the thin blue line separating society from anarchy. It's notable that the judge himself in his interview talks about how that specific line and that specific concept brought a tear to his eye. And he doesn't usually get emotional, but that was what really did it for him. (sighs) What a weirdo. (laughs) And he's getting ready to... You know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to put a man to death and, and, and you think you're some agent for good against the forces of chaos and anarchy? What the fuck? Sorry. Ironically, <laughs> it's not surprising that this is based off of the phrase, the thin red line, which is talking about the army and basically the same setup because people do this all the time. We have a whole podcast based around this, the real war project. Yeah. And. The way that we've turned this to like, oh, we're just we're just believing in our boys and they're doing the thing that they need to do. And all of this kind of militarism, that's this is really no different. Right. Like you get this eye for like, oh, yeah, they're just they're just going in and and we're we're that line and we're there to protect and they violated the line or whatever. It's like, no, it's way more complex than that. Way more complex. And it's also the idea and I'm sorry to get back on the biblical thing because they really didn't get into biblical stuff here. It always applies. You know, when you talk to somebody who's like super devout and they think that if you don't believe, then like what's to stop you from just murdering somebody? And you're like, so many reasons. Like it's morally wrong. I don't need a Bible to tell me that. It's against what society wants. Like it's not doesn't have to be based in Christianity. Like murder is murder whatever religion you believe in or no religion, you know, it kind of ties in with that to me. It's like, we need this thing to hold the line. It's like, we don't necessarily need that thing to hold the line the way you think we do, or at least we need it to hold the line differently. It's more like, what line are you holding? Because again, like we've already discussed, but to re-pinpoint, this is Texas. We still live in a society that wants to believe so badly it is post-racist, but it is absolutely not. And so, you know, when we ask ourselves, you and me, people that don't have the relationship with religion that other people do, like, why, why, why do you give yourself over to your faith? Why do you believe things 100%? It's like, well, fear. Yeah, but that's so easy to say and reductive. How does that apply here? 
these men, specifically the judicial system, the police, the DA, the judge, are so obsessed with maintaining the law and order that they are comfortable with. That keeps them powerful. That keeps them the oppressing class. That keeps them the ruling class. They have every stake invested in maintaining that power and control. One has to think when they look at David Harris from Vider, Texas, they see themselves as opposed to when they look at Randall Adams, they see some outsider. And let's be honest, he looks like kind of a hippie, you know, like I think that's important for the time because he's got the bushy hair. He's got like the the chops and stuff like he codes a bit counterculture and that probably played into it, too. Drifter, long haired, freaky people need not apply, you know, so. When we look at it through that lens, they're really invested in maintaining this level of order and not disturbing what is most beneficial to them. Yeah. And they'll use whatever they have to use to get it. And I mean, imagine these are people who look fondly on or regard well somebody who has convicted to death that many people. Like that's a badge of honor. Yeah. Wild, wild. They do that under God's name. Wild. Yeah. Wild. But again, you know, religion supports the powerful to amass more power and wealth because they are, again, the ruling oppressing class. So, you know, by using the people at the bottom, none of this could happen if they couldn't use poor disenfranchised folks. Let's move on to something slightly lighter. Are you sure? So, Are you sure? <laughs> I know you want to talk about this. So Philip Glass composed ah! this movie. So Philip Glass, a couple of movies that I plucked out was The Fog of War. Yeah. Candyman and the yeah. original Dracula, like the 1931 version with Bela Lugosi. So what do you want to say about Philip Glass? I love Philip Glass. I have a whole little page of Philip Glass. For those of you... Who are my, I'm 42. So the first time I heard Philip Glass. Uh, No, I'm 43. I just turned 43. Never mind. Hey, happy birthday. (laughs) Thanks. Not used to it yet. (laughs) Right. I first heard Philip Glass on Sesame Street. You can find it on YouTube. He did a composition that was later animated and it's called The Geometry of Circles. It's pretty wonderful. But, you know, so he's sort of hard coded. He's ingrained. I also do a burlesque act to that Philip Glass song. And the setup is that it's my liberal arts school dance thesis called Mother Father Unity Circle. And I wear a mask and I do a lot of viewpoint stuff. And then I pour water all over myself at the end. Bean. <laughs> so I, I think Philip Glass has attained to a lot of people this magical status of being truly one of the most unique and prolific modern composers of our time. And really, really good. Like you've definitely heard Philip Glass in one of the movies you like or something. You just don't know it. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of movies that were famous. Those were just like three I plucked out, you know. While also being so easily lambastable and harpoonable, like the South Park episode I mentioned earlier is um, it's their personal war on Christmas. The families are warring over what the school should do to participate. You know, should we have Christmas festivities or whatever? And because of all the infighting and all the parental fighting, they finally wind up doing like a non-denominational Christmas. Christmas pageant with Philip Glass. <laughs> and, you know, ha, 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 winter, you know, that sort of vibe. <laughs> 
which just proves to me how wonderful and lovable he is because you don't get that famous and people like knowing how to make fun of you without being pretty prolific pretty amazing exactly but it's like new york minimalist composer philip glass i just love the way he thinks about music and the way he writes music for film uh, stage everything and i had the um good fortune to see him live he came through the theater i used to work at at olympia oh that's cool and so i took the day off to watch from the audience which i never did you know everybody i was everybody else worked that day go figure and one of my good friends on the backstage crew um had to take him to buy socks because he needed socks and i don't think there's anything more like truly postmodern American than buying socks with Philip Glass. Like just to me, it's the best story of any story. She took him to the fancy men's store across the street and everything was too expensive. So she just wound up taking him to Target. <laughs> right. He goes from theater work into opera work. He's doing Einstein on the beach uh, around the time that the crime was happening and then later releasing it to film around the time this or before this film was being made. So he was gaining a lot of notoriety in America, certainly through films like The Thin Blue Line. He became more of a household name where we might not really get to know so many minimalist experimental composers. Yeah. Right. Something he talks about a lot in other uh, interviews is where does music come from and how that curiosity and that fascination has driven much of his career. And so whenever I watch a work that contains his music, I always like to think about like, where did this come from? Like, why why is this the sounds that wound up in this piece? Because he does both fiction work and non-narrative fiction. Yeah. And so it's it's always compelling. And uh, it's so compelling in The Thin Blue Line because it's a very unresolved. All, all of the music does not come to a satisfying conclusion. It's kind of driving. It's kind of giving you this sense of like being a merry-go-round. You're just going around and around in the same rhythm. It's timed out to that stopwatch often. Right. Exactly. And then it will just abruptly stop or abruptly end. And it truly encapsulates the feeling of this film and kind of how the film would have left you, like we said in 1988. You know, you're just on this wild ride and then just kathunk, it's over. And there's no nice sustained note. There's no beautiful resolve in the music to help you feel better. Like you're just as unsettled as Randall Adams was thinking he was going to be in prison for life, right? Yeah. And as such a test to what film and music can do and what film and music can do together. And so we see these combinations like David Lynch and Angelo Bandelamonti and Philip Glass and Errol Morris and how they're able to kind of work together to tell different sides of the story with what they're doing musically. It's just brilliant. Um, And so much Philip Glass is on YouTube. Philip Glass wants all his works to be used. If you want, he said in so many reviews, like, if you want to do it, do it. You can ask, but don't just do something with my music. Use it, you know, and uh, go out and find some more Philip Glass. He's an incredible artist slash activist. And um, in specific, you movie lovers might really enjoy the non-narrative films of Godfrey Reggio, his Quatsi series. So it's Koyana Skatsi, Poa Quatsi, and Nakoya Quatsi. 
talk about a mouthful, but those are all Hopi Indian words, right? About life, essentially. And there are these films. One was made in 82, one was made in 88, and one was made in 2002, all with the the same director and with Philip Glass. And it's all about modern life and technology meeting the environment and the impacts that we have on each other. Just... Go get yourself immersed because there's a lot to learn here. There's a there's there's a lot of work that's already been done. Go find it. Absolutely. Randall's conviction was overturned a year after the Thin Blue Line's release by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. The DA's office decided not to prosecute him again, and Randall was set free. So that was where I was just like, because I, I went to the computer. I'm like, I'm sure that he got off. I'm sure. Yep. yep. But. I need to know. And so I went to look and I was just like, ah, thank God. Uh, Randall brought a lawsuit to Morris over his life story. They settled out of court. Randall made it known to the press that he did not sue for money from the movie. I saw Errol Morris talk about this later and he said basically his mind was a little wonky from being in prison and he thought he had signed something where he was signing over his life story and he was like, whatever, like we settled it, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Randall was not awarded any money by Texas for wrongful imprisonment. I kept coming across stuff that said if he had gotten free 10 years later, he would have gotten $10,000 for every year he was in prison. What a fucking system, man. Fuck. Uh, he became an advocate against the death penalty and he died in 2010 of brain cancer. So at least he got to spend some time out of prison, you know. Exactly. He also wrote a book called Adams versus Texas, I believe in 1991, it looks like right around there. So that may be out there, but I haven't investigated it any further. Uh, something else I read was when he died, the press didn't get wind of it until a year later because he lived oh. in such anonymity. That uh. Like they just didn't even, it wasn't even on the radar when he died. Sure. David Harris was executed by lethal injection in 2004 for the murder of Mark Mays. So he was definitely killed 15 years later. Yeah, well after. I just don't believe in the death penalty, man. You know, I I I don't either. It, I struggle with that even after all of this experience and knowing what we know about this man who would have just lied to save himself and let somebody else go to the chair. I I just still don't think it's just that he himself was executed. Like what I've always maintained it it's I think it's harder in prison than to to be killed. So it, even if you're for like fire and brimstone punishment, I do think it's worse being stuck in jail and knowing you're not going to get out. You know, I agree. I agree. I, I, I think it's both cruel. It's all cruel. It's yeah. certainly inhuman, but our system is flawed. So there's a lot of flaws and I don't yeah. think we're going to get to the bottom of it tonight. But I don't know. <laughs> I feel like we presented a lot tonight. So <laughs> That's right. A cosmic void versus the justice system. <laughs> boom, boom. So what are the rules, Lauren? No phone, no lawyer. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Uh, keep that undefeated streak. I think that's a rule in this movie. They were certainly really trying on that one. Be careful of the lady with the wild eyes. Yeah. Don't, that one. That one. <laughs> Ma'am. She, she really looked like she would be returning her ceramic poodle that was chipped and be very upset and sure that the cashier was trying to pawn it off on her and <laughs> getting well, away she, with the, something. The cashier has broken into her home and chipped it there <laughs> to terrorize her. Yeah. I know. I watch people. I know people. I watch detective shows and I always figure it out. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Way to deconstruct some writer's like... <laughs> 
<laughs> TV show. I do that too. I don't think I'd be a great detective. <laughs> right? Yes. This, what we're doing right here, not police work. We mm-hmm. are clear on roles. We are clear. I'm in my lane. <laughs> Right? We're in front of a uh, microphone trying to entertain. This is what we do. They're yes. like writing things for a TV show. And this lady's watching the TV show and she's just like, I know how this is. People can convince themselves of anything. Be careful who you believe and what you believe. And maybe they aren't even convinced. Like, I think that's what a lot of the stuff with David leaves us like. He just lied and lied and lied. And I kept working and he didn't care it was fun it was a game didn't matter truth was whatever he he admitted to so many crimes too turned himself in so much makes me think you're really onto something with this all being a game to him yeah it it really felt like that wild wild is the title of the movie set in the movie is this time we've had a series of no's but this one is a yes it is and we've already gone over the quote so i don't think we have to again (laughs) we got it uh does it end at the right moment Uh, for the for what they knew at the time yeah yeah i agree a confession's a pretty great way to to end and the text to make you upset and that is what helps get this guy freed right because he confesses three years before the movie comes out Yep. I looked into it and that was entered into the courts and it still didn't help. And then the movie had to come out with like public opinion turning against the courts to yep. finally make it happen. So All yeah, it ends outrage, right yeah. where it needed to end. But if you don't have the internet, might be infuriating watching it today. <laughs> well, or like what a mystery without the internet. Because two, I think the first time that I saw it, I did not have more information about what had happened to Randall Harris until much later. Yeah. It was much later. And then the internet really started to be a thing. And, you know, then then I was really into Errol Morris in general and all caught up with everything. But yeah, it makes you think about it as a documentary versus another style film, too. Like, it's just as engrossing or as captivating as any fiction type format you know it's a cinematic epic captivating and it's a tight 90 it doesn't overstay its welcome either it's like it's in it gives you everything you need to know and it's out the music's great like it's it's just a really well made movie i'm so glad it was made then and not like you were saying in this time of netflix when it would have been an eight part we would have had a six disc philip glass soundtrack we would know everything about the da's upbringing (laughs) you know what i mean we would see his wife talking about like how like oh yeah he just eats his peanut butter sandwiches and putters around the house he's only happy when he's winning cases like we would get all of that like i don't and it it would have undercut the drama of this story it would have really sucked a lot of the juice out of this story because the mystery unraveling is what makes this work yeah i agree huh 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 does the story continue i mean yeah it kind of did like randall was freed right so life goes on like we've said and you've said a couple times we know that these miscarriages of justice continue to happen and that the innocence project is a thing and there are all sorts of different projects devoted to exonerating innocent people that are on death row or in prison right now and we know how many people roaming around have done really nasty deeds and not seen the punishment that maybe would have been deserved in quotes again so who's your acv mvp for this movie i'm gonna say the burger king cup 
because it's oh, 80s style oh. and it gives me the feels. Like it, ma- it makes me a little nostalgic. I've worked at a Burger King in the 90s. So like it's the same cup. They all keep calling it a malt. She had a malt. Because it was Did actually kids- made with milk in those days. Right. Do the kids even know what a malt is? No, no like, way. Okay. Right. <laughs> Who's my. Well, I know my MVP is Edith James, the sassy l- lawyer in turquoise. Just I love her spunk. I love her style. I love it all. She but, is okay. great, but like oh. sassy is not a word I would use for her. How can I put this? She feels like she watches the Weather Channel all day on her spare time. Oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> I guess I mean more like uh, tells it like it is. Yeah. No nonsense. Yeah. And, or less sassy, more direct. Yes. I hear what you're saying. Blunt. She reminds yep. me of an aunt. <laughs> <laughs> if I could have two, uh, I'd like to say uh, that Philip Glass is my <laughs> but I just let fair. No, that's fair. I mean, that's my art boyfriend. That slow motion and the little bit of malt comes out of the straw. It, it they spend so much time on that. It, you're right. It's it's pretty great. <laughs> Uh, reception it made 1.2 million during its theatrical run budget numbers are unavailable but morris has said it lost money uh, a couple of times but it was funded by pbs so what's the loss you know uh janet maslin of the new york times said errol morris the director of the thin blue line has fashioned a brilliant work of pulp fiction around this crime mr morris's film is both an investigation of a murder and a nightmarish meditation on the difference between truth and fiction an alarming glimpse at the many distortions that have shaped mr adam's death Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars. He said it's a movie that is a documentary, a drama, investigation, and reverie, a mediation on the fact that Adams was plucked from the center of his life and locked up forever in a crime that no reasonable person could seriously believe he committed. Critics loved it across the board. Everything I read was just people loved it. And just to follow up, I have another Roger Ebert quote, probably from the same review. He says, although he makes documentaries, Morris is much more interested in the spaces between the facts than with the facts themselves. He is fascinated by strange people, by odd word choices and manners of speech, by the way that certain symbols or beliefs can become fetishes with the power to rule human lives. People have asked me why I use Roger Ebert over and over again. It's because he collected all of his reviews onto the Internet before he died. And so they're accessible. It's really hard hard to find more than like a three sentence quote about a lot of these movies it when is. they're like 90s or older probably it's yep. like 2000s you can find them pretty easy but well and roger ebert spoke well and concisely about what he meant and that's really always valuable when we're talking about criticism yeah and siskel and ebert they changed all of television really right I mean, right do you remember their show oh i love their show i still right. watch it on youtube sometimes oh, um yeah it is on youtube yeah, and that's okay. sometimes when I can't find a good quote, I'll just go to see if they did it on the show. And most of them are on YouTube somewhere. And nice. I often just watch the entire show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, why not, right? Influences, it has film noir styles and reenactments. So let's credit the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> but now that I think about it, I talked in that Maltese Falcon episode about how it's considered anything post-1960 is not film noir, it's neo-noir. So let's say uh, Alphaville. Okay. (laughs) I just put my beret on for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Neo-noir. I love it. Uh, what it influenced so it 
influenced the reenactments and documentaries for sure. Absolutely. I see that all the time in documentaries. Not necessarily true crime all the time, although it's there. Yeah. It's often there where they'll have like a couple arguing in the background. That's usually like a TV show thing, right? Sure, sure. But like in movies, they'll do it for um, one that sticks out to me is Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Funk Brothers, they have a lot of scenes of them like playing a show or being off arguing or driving in a car. And it's just like reenactments while the, the person's telling the story. So it's definitely employed a lot. And it's it's really funny that um, the Academy was against nominating this for an Academy Award yep. because of the reenactments. They said it, it blurred the line for documentaries too much. And Roger Ebert said it was because of the inability of the Academy voters to appreciate innovative filmmaking. So. <laughs> he fucking took it to him, dude. Our boy Roger Dunk- was on fire. Duncan, the Interatron, his system for filming his interviews is still frequently used by 60 Minutes and by many filmmakers across the board. I found some how to build your own on YouTube and people talking about let you more in depth these days and how you can make your own and why they benefit uh, people specifically trying to gather these kind of interviews. But he pioneered it for this film and it's still in use today. And like all things, it's just open source for people to build their own and use. Absolutely. In 2001, this film was inducted into the National Film Registry. So that's really good. There's not very many documentaries in there. So that's a huge honor. Other source material, I'm just going to say Life Itself. Yeah. Also one of my favorite Errol Morris documentaries. And he did it on Roger Ebert. And that movie, if you want to know about criticism, it's a really good movie. But furthermore, it is just devastating watching Roger Ebert in the last year of his life. I mean, it's just devastating having seen him on TV for so long, but he hung in there as long as he could and and kept doing it. But, oh, God, I almost want to cry just talking about it. Like, But uh, definitely check out that doc. So Yes, uh, really anything by him, but his uh, more recent works about the Iraq war and standard operating procedure. A lot of his films are not only intriguing documentaries to get your mind working. They are activism in and of themselves and trying to raise awareness about things that have happened in our recent past. So so if you had a 4K player, would you buy this in 4K, Lauren? I mean, I don't know. I, that milkshake would look wild. I just, I, I, you could pause I it and zoom in. Right. I guess it's more like if I had this in like super THS surround sound, would I get it? Because I feel like the real nuances in the music. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. How about you? Uh, yeah, I think so. Why not? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> I've Don't never worry. been asked that before. Oh yeah. <laughs> Did I sell this Blu-ray to settle medical debt? I tried, but then I spilled the chocolate milkshake all over it. There you go. Okay, one last question. Yeah. How does this movie remind you of Love Actually? Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a murder, but in the case of Love Actually, it was just a murder of my good sense. (laughs) And the time I wasted watching that. Oh, I had to. I'm sorry. I know it's good because I didn't realize how I still have. I have a river of ire flowing freely inside of me for that film. I could just unload, start me up. I'll never stop. Oh, love, actually. 
So sign up for free with Anchor and you can leave us a voicemail by following the link in the description of this podcast and the show's poll questions at the sites. Listen to us through Spotify and you can tell us what movie you'd like to hear in the future. Cosmic Void was created by Alex Small and Jeremiah Perez. It was hosted by Alex Small and Lauren O'Neill. The theme song was written and produced by Tom Smith. Follow me, the show, and Redwood Sound Labs on Instagram at Redwood underscore sound underscore labs or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Redwood Sound Labs. You can read short reviews of every movie I watch on Letterboxd under Alex Big Small. And join us next week when we talk with Lauren's co-host on Dippers, Sarah Lynn, about the John Cusack comedy classic, Better Off Dead. about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void. 